Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Welcome to the podcast. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is here. She represents Massachusetts' 7th Congressional District. She is co-chair of the Abortion Rights and Access Task Force and co-lead of the Women's Health Protection Act. Uh, she was, by the way, I don't know if you know this, uh, the first person of color to be elected to Congress from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And before she was in Congress, she was on the Boston City Council and she was the first woman of color to be elected to that body in its 100-year history. Uh, she's here today to talk about student loan debt forgiveness. She thinks it's a great idea. I have some questions. Uh, what happens if Roe v. Wade is overturned? That is a continuing conversation uh, that I'll be returning to because it implicates many, many other rights uh, beyond simply uh, the right to uh, terminate a pregnancy or not. And. Um, we talk about some other stuff. So here I am with the Congresswoman. I hope you enjoy. Congresswoman Presley, uh, thank you so much for being here. Talk to us about what happens if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Well, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, it means that um, people's lives um, will be put in jeopardy. Um, this is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of bodily autonomy, of reproductive justice and freedom. Um, I know that it's hard for me to stomach uh, those who argue that they are um, supporters in uh, civil liberties when my very freedom and liberty over my body uh, is being threatened at every turn. And we know in that black women are three times more likely to die in childbirth and, and the history of medical apartheid against disabled women, uh, black women, indigenous women, uh, forced sterilizations, experimentation without our consent. And then we're three times more likely to die in birth. And so we're talking about a scenario of forced birth. Um, and so we know that by putting safe legal abortion out of reach for people, um, that, that doesn't mean that people will stop pursuing health care. And abortion care is health care. It means they'll stop pursuing it safely and legally. Um, and so uh, it, it means that people's lives will be put in jeopardy. You were very critical of the Supreme Court's refusal to intervene in the um, execution of the Texas law. And the Texas abortion law that garnered so much discussion didn't just address the issue of women. I mean, it, it, didn't just it doesn't just touch women uh, who may be seeking abortions or healthcare providers who may be providing abortions. In Texas, uh, you can be... You can come under the jurisdiction of this law for giving someone a ride to an abortion clinic or helping someone secure an abortion somewhere else. If Roe v. Wade falls, do people have to fear that sort of, uh, those sorts of prosecutions? So let's just say if, 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 if it becomes illegal or criminal to get an abortion in, in Mississippi, can someone in California be prosecuted in Mississippi if they're trying to help a woman in that state uh, get health care elsewhere? Uh, could we be approaching that sort of regime? It certainly is plausible. And again, some of what you're talking about there is already happening in Texas. And, you know, I think about the fact in the 1970s here in Boston, in fact, I had a square dedicated to this uh, black doctor, Ken Edelin, uh, who was convicted of manslaughter in the 1970s for performing abortions. Uh, and so the fact that Roe v. Wade is um, 
majority of Americans support it, do not want to see it overturned, and that this Supreme Court once again would obstruct the will of the people and put people in harm's way. Um, and this is um, par for the course with this far-right, imbalanced, extreme Supreme Court, which has obstructed the will of the people when it comes to voting rights, uh, when it comes to, to housing rights, and again, now to reproductive justice and freedom, bodily autonomy, uh, to health care. Uh, and so, you know, there are a number of states that do have uh, laws where abortion would continue uh, to be legal, safe and legal. Massachusetts is one of those. We passed the Roe Act here. Um, but what you what we will experience is a spillover from other states. Um, if you live in a state that has not passed a law like that, and if this draft does become uh, official and become becomes the ruling, um, we will have people coming from uh, states uh, where they are, are denied access to health care, to abortion care, and they'll be coming to Massachusetts, which is why our state legislature uh, just um, appropriated many, you know, tens of thousands of funds to uh, ensure access uh, to reproductive care and health care. And we'll need more state legislatures to step up in that way and to stand in the gap if this draft does become the law of the land. Uh, moreover, Tanya, the last thing I would say when it comes to, to this, uh, if this ruling becomes real, this is a frightening bellwether of other privacy issues that could be on the horizon. It is everything that myself and many other Black women in uh, the work of reproductive justice feared uh, a day like this would happen. And that's why I'm proud to be an original uh, co-lead of the Women's Health Protection Act, which did pass the House. But uh, unfortunately, despite our efforts, even physically occupying the Senate chamber uh, to look members in the eye and appeal to them to do the right thing and to honor the will of the majority of people who call this country home, uh, they did not uh, pass the Women's Health Protection Act. But I'm glad that those senators, those Republican senators, uh, were put on the record so that the electorate can put them on notice. How much of a factor do you think that will play? in the elections in November. Uh, Congresswoman, uh, you are a member of the party in power that is expected to lose seats and is embattled right now. Certainly, this issue of reproductive freedom figures largely in the minds of voters, but so does inflation. Uh, so does the fact that people can't get goods and services. Uh, people can't get baby formula. Uh, people are paying close to $7 a gallon for gas. Where do you think this figures in the spectrum of issues about which voters are very rightly concerned right now? It's not or, it's and. All of these issues are interconnected. So if you're talking about a reality whereby people could be denied access to health care, and again, abortion care is health care, and be forced to give birth in a country that does not have universal child care, um, that does not have a parental leave uh, policy, and again, Black women are three times more likely to die in childbirth. Uh, so for many of us, it uh, could quite literally be a death sentence. So far as the other issues that you spoke about, I mean, again, I think it's not or, it's and. All of these issues are top of mind. Uh, for the electorate. And that's why it's important that being in the majority be more than just a talking point and that people uh, feel seen by their government and that we're meeting their most basic needs. And that's why um, it's important that we put Senate Republicans on record so that people see who has contempt for the American people and at every turn is obstructing progress on everything from voting rights to climate justice to gun reform 
uh, and every other issue of consequence to the American people. And I'll say specifically to Black America, you know, this Senate has their foot on the neck of Black America. They are obstructing uh, the restoration of voting rights, obstructing the George Floyd justice and policing bill, obstructing work on uh, climate change and Black communities, brown communities, and marginalized communities disproportionately bear the burden of environmental injustices. And then they, again, obstructed a passage of the Women's Health Protection Act. And given the Black maternal morbidity crisis, you know, so um, Democrats have got to lead on these issues. Um, We have to be responsive to these attacks. And I think that that is uh, just, it's moral. Uh, This is sound policy. Uh, This and canceling student debt and many other issues. Um, And also good politics. The majority stays in power. The ultimate persuasion tool is impact. So we have to deliver to the American people. And we certainly need to deliver to Black America, the most reliable voting constituency of this party. Let's talk for a moment about uh, canceling student loan debt, because uh, you have advocated that President Biden cancel. I think he said that he'd cancel $10,000 Uh, a person. You've said he should go further and it should be $50,000 a person. Is that a good idea? And I'll throw a couple of things out at you that I know you've heard. Um, These aren't counter arguments uh, that I've conjured on my own, but there are a few of them that I think loom large. Uh, One is that a large proportion of that debt um, covers, not I won't say half, maybe 30% roughly uh, covers graduate loans, uh, if I'm if I'm correct, those monies were taken out by folks like me, so they could get fancy degrees where you can ultimately make some money. If you're borrowing money to go to law school, query whether or not uh, the federal government should pay off your debt when you know that degree uh, is a, a very valuable asset. Uh, the second counterargument I would throw out there is, is it fair to people who worked three and four jobs uh, and took five and six years to come out of school because they couldn't afford or they didn't want to assume uh, the big loan repayment? And thirdly, um, is there something fundamentally unfair about the fact that most Americans who do not have student loans Will be assumed. Will be required to assume the burden of people who got a higher education, can't quite pay for it. And again, you know, I'm not assigning blame. Part of the issue here has been some of these fraudulent for-profit institutions uh, that have given people pieces of paper that you, you know, that are worth almost nothing. But at the end of the day, you're saying to somebody who said, "I'm going to pay this back." Now you don't. And other people, you know, made different sorts of decisions. So respond to those points, if you would, because I think that they figure large in people's minds when they're contemplating the sort of forgiveness that you advocate. Well, when we talk about fairness, um, I think it's unfair that Black Americans in particular, who disproportionately bear the burden of this nearly $2 trillion crisis, our families were obstructed from building generational wealth because of draconian and discriminatory policies like redlining. And so 85% of black students had no choice but to take out loans to pursue higher education. And then we're five times more likely to default on those loans. Uh, That has everything to do with the racial wealth gap, uh, the gender and and pay inequity gap, you know, layered uh, other systematic ways of of legislated marginalization. I'm one of those people that you spoke about who worked multiple jobs and 
uh, for many years to pay my loans off, but I want uh, better for the next generation. This is a nearly $2 trillion crisis, Tanya, affecting people from every walk of life. I have parents uh, who are in their upper 60s who cannot retire because they took out Parent PLUS loans to support their children. And they can't retire because they're still paying on those loans. I have parents still paying their loans and now their children's loans. I have senior citizens, 76 years old, on fixed incomes, uh, collecting Social Security, still paying on student loans. And of course, a whole generation um, who cannot start a family, grow a family, uh, purchase a home uh, because of the burden of this debt. The average borrower is saddled with about $32,000 worth of debt. So this debt is affecting people from every walk of life, is choking at the promise of this country, and we can do something to alleviate it. And the president, without one vote from Congress, can act unilaterally by executive action with the authority that he's been given by Congress through the Higher Education Act to do broad-based student debt cancellation at $50,000. Now, $50,000, I'm advocating that we go, you know, as, as big and, it, so, and as transformative as possible so people feel that meaningful impact in their day-to-day lives. If we cancel $50,000 worth of broad-based student debt uh, by executive action, that will immediately free 30 million people from debt, and it will close the racial wealth gap by 30%. So this is a race. Do it for everybody, like everybody. So somebody who said, you know what, I'm going to take out a whole bunch of money to go to fancy law school A. And now I am paying a lot of money back and I'm paying that interest. And my neighbor down the street said, you know what, I'm going to go to a state supported law school A because I don't want to take out that much debt. I mean, should person A get the same relief? They made a different choice. I mean, do you think there's a way, like, could we filter through and maybe find a way, you know, should it be as broad-based as $50,000 for every borrower? We should seek to alleviate the burden for anyone who is burdened by this debt. This is, first of all, a smart economic strategy as we, in earnest, even though we're still very much in a pandemic, attempt the work of recovery from this pandemic-induced recession. And this will jumpstart the economy. Tanya, we were very successful. I'm leading this fight in the House in partnership with Senator Warren and Leader Schumer, Rep. Omar and others. And we got this administration three times to pause student loan payments during the pandemic. People used those funds to remain safely housed during the pandemic. Uh, Some people became first-generation homebuyers. And so, and some people use it to purchase essential goods. And so if we've seen that sort of transformative impact in the course of two plus years of a pandemic, imagine how game changing it will be if we see broad-based student debt cancellation at $50,000, again, which will free from the weight of this debt, 30 million Americans and close the racial wealth gap by 30%. So this is a good economic strategy as we begin recovery. This is an economic justice issue. Tanya, it's a gender justice issue. Two thirds of this nearly $2 trillion debt are carried by women. And again, it's a racial justice issue. The NAACP supports this. The Congressional Black Caucus supports student debt cancellation. They just came out. Our Democratic leadership from Whip Clyburn to uh, Chair Hakeem uh, Jeffries, the American Federation of Teachers supports student debt cancellation. The AFL-CIO supports student debt cancellation. And when we talk about this pandemic 
and a shortage of our healthcare workers, when we talk about the burden on educators and the politicizing of their profession and, and the debt that our educators carry, we talk about workforce shortages. When I talk to them, they all say, you have got to cancel student debt in order for us to address these workforce shortages. So Tanya, I guess what I would say is, I don't hear people complaining about the need for us to invest in universal child care and pre-K because people see that as a public good. You know, and so we have to address the issue writ large of the affordability of college. Canceling student debt is just one bold step in the right direction. We need tuition-free college. Um, and I've certainly uh, just recently, uh, because of my advocacy to our appropriations committee, we were able to de deliver $1 million to one of our community colleges to support tuition-free college. We need tuition-free college. We need an expansion of Pell Grants. And we need to invest in our historically black colleges and universities, which have been woefully and chronically underfunded. And tell you the last point I would say in that end is that out of all the needs our HBCUs have because of the decades of underinvestment federally, they used American rescue funds. They used federal dollars for this pandemic to cancel student debt. All the ways they could have used those, those monies. The point of the matter here is that the cost of education Higher education has increased by 150%. While wages have remained stagnant, the cost of housing is through the roof. And, and again, uh, childcare and all of these other needs that families have. Massachusetts has the second highest cost of childcare in the country. So we have to address these issues holistically uh, to alleviate the burdens and the pressures that um, working families are experiencing. You know, I went to Howard, so I am all for uh, supporting HBCUs and uh, the students who are there. Um, I worry about free, though. You know, I mean, Congresswoman, for all the reasons that I, I just, I worry about free. I worry that when something is free, people don't value it the same. And I know that's a cliche, but uh, I, I'd, I'd love to continue that conversation because I do think it's important to consider it all in context. Uh, something else you said that I'm not going to give short shrift to, when you talk about the historic inequities um, that a lot of communities, Black communities in particular, had to deal with, redlining. So, for instance, when a lot of us went to college, a, a lot of Black folks didn't have parents with homes that had equity that That's they right. could borrow against for that college. Uh, when it's you look layered. At, for instance, I mean, the, the, it's I layered. The GI Bill. bill. It's layered. I you know, exactly. And those are you, all something, things that we're trying to address right now. You know, there's legislation making its way through the House where the descendants of World War II, African-American uh, veterans, um, would, would have some restoration. So African-Americans had unequal access to the GI Bill. We, we uh, still live with the residual effects of redlining, which, again, I'm on FSC, financial services. And so those practices, uh, despite what many banking institutions say, are still very much uh, active. And then we see that even the appraisals um, do not give an accurate accounting of, of the wealth of these properties. So there's no one policy that's going to undo centuries of hurt and harm for Black Americans or other marginalized communities. It's going to require a suite of legislative efforts that are just as precise as those legislative, legislative efforts were to systematically marginalize us. But this is canceling student debt without question is a racial justice issue. It's a gender justice issue. And all of the economists say that we've been told this is a meritocracy. We were told to pursue higher education because it would close the racial wealth gap, but it has only worsened it. So this is just one strategy that will seek to address the larger inequities that you and I are talking about.
We need more money for people to learn trades. I got to tell I you, totally agree. there are a number of people who pursued the trades um, who were victimized by for-profit colleges and universities. They didn't want to pursue the trades. And, you know, they have degrees that, that don't mean very much. And in fact, we have many people outside of uh, for-profit institutions, 40%, Tanya, who have student debt, but don't even have a degree. Don't even have a degree. Let's shift gears for a moment because you were talk you spoke about gender equity and I just want to go back for a moment to what happens if and when Roe is overturned. Do you sense and it's actually bigger than just that, but um, from where I sit, there seems to be a growing tolerance in this country and in that body where you sit in particular. Uh, a growing tolerance of authoritarianism. It seems that there are more people who are comfortable with folks saying, you're going to do this because we say so, and this is what we think. Uh, There has been uh, some implicit and maybe not so implicit, maybe even a more expressed defense of authoritarian regimes in other countries. There has been a standard of behavior in the halls of your building that you know our parents would not have allowed us to get away with uh, in any school, any public building, but folks who you work with, uh, some of whom seem to think that all bets are off as long as they win um, and that any sort of behavior is tolerated. Uh, Are we moving in the wrong direction? Are are people becoming more tolerant of extremism or are we just hearing about a lot of the, uh, are are we just hearing a lot of the rough stuff? Well, we only need look at the tragic events in in Buffalo, New York and California, you know, in the last uh, two weeks as as evidence that uh, we're becoming tolerant of extremism and without accountability, um, that extremism, uh, that white supremacy, that anti- uh, black, Asian, anti-Semitic, um, Islamophobia, uh, hate speech um, becomes, that violent rhetoric becomes violent action. Um, so uh, we certainly do see an emboldened vitriol uh, and hate and authoritarianism, I agree. Um, but, you know, look, I, prior to Congress, I served in the city council eight years and I was an aide for 16 years, uh, four in the House, 11 in the Senate. There's still no place else in the world I'd rather be. I still, you know, I maintain a, a great, tremendous amount of respect for this institution uh, and the role that it can and should play in the lives of everyday people. Um, and when I think about uh, my ancestors coming out of enslavement, heading into Reconstruction and the gains that were made there, only to see those undone by Jim Crow. Uh, this is in many ways sort of just the algorithm of the work of justice. It is never ending. People so often say uh, representation matters, and I think it does. And I think that the difference it makes for young women to see someone like you in a leadership role um, in this country is uh, remarkable. But let's talk about your history for a moment, because when you joined the Boston City Council, you were the first woman of color in that city council's 100-year history. Uh, when you beca- when you came to Congress from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, you were the first woman of color to be elected from the Commonwealth ever uh, to Congress. Representation matters, but when you showed up to the party, you didn't have any. Who are your mentors? Who inspired you? 
Yeah, well, you know, I'm a firm believer that a parent is a child's first teacher, not their only one, but their first. And so uh, my mother, may she rest in peace and power, was uh, an incredible uh, educator. She always saw me as a little person, if that makes sense, uh, not just her baby. And so she didn't uh, condescend or patronize me because I was a child. Um, She read me the speeches of Barbara Jordan and Shirley Chisholm. You know, she wasn't reading me bedtime stories about um, princesses and being saved. Um, You know, I'm sure that has its place and, you know, someone's formative years, but it it did not have a place in mine. And um, I felt very much mentored uh, by the example of uh, Barbara Jordan and and Shirley Chisholm. And uh, even growing up in Chicago, Harold Washington, the first black mayor uh, there, that was the very first campaign I worked on at the age of 10 years old. Um, So uh, representation matters. And uh, the best role model and representation I had was in my mother, who was a super voter, uh, a community and movement builder. She was everything from a a social worker to um, an executive secretary in a patent law firm uh, to a social worker. Um, You know, she she held uh, many jobs to make ends meet. But she always said in life, there's a difference between your job and your work. Your job is what pays the bills and your work with a capital W is the work of the upliftment and betterment of community and society. And she made sure I knew that to be black was a beautiful thing, something I should be proud of, but that I was being born into a struggle. And she had an expectation that I would do my part in that struggle, in the work of liberation of black people and all marginalized people. Uh, so uh, those are some of the people that I would credit as my as my mentors. And, um, you know, I would say so far as Massachusetts is concerned, um, I'm, I'm actually not even just the first woman of color. I'm the first person of color, period, uh, to represent the Commonwealth in the House of Representatives in its 230 year history. And, um, you know, that is a sobering Uh, and damning commentary. We are making strides. You know, when I was led to the Boston City Council as the first woman of color on that body, I was the only woman serving for two of my terms. And now that 13 member body is majority people of color and majority women of color. You know, so uh, we we are making strides uh, when it comes to leadership parity. And that representation does matter. But Tanya, it doesn't matter so that our pictures are, are more colorful. It doesn't matter so we can pat ourselves on the back about how progressive we are or for contrived moments of kumbaya. It matters for how it shows up around policy and decision-making tables. And we're all better served when we don't have policymakers uh, developing solutions through a completely monolithic and homogenized prism. That does a disservice to everyone. You need a diversity of perspective, opinion, uh, lived experience, and thought around policy and decision-making tables. Otherwise, the policies that we're advancing uh, will not serve uh, people. You know, uh, they will, um, they'll be uh, hollow, shallow, one-dimensional. And so that's the true benefit of representation. And I see that now, now that I'm living with alopecia. You know, many people were unaware that there are 7 million people in this country that are living uh, with the same autoimmune disease that I have. But when I made the decision to not wear a wig uh, and uh, this felt authentic for me to show up in the world in this way, although it's disruptive for many people. I won't pretend that it's not. Some of the the vitriol and hate that you were referencing earlier uh, certainly has increased tenfold uh, because of my alopecia representation, because this challenges people's definition of what is professional, what is uh, pretty, what is feminine, what is appropriate. But I don't think I'm here just to take up space. I think I'm here to create it too. Uh, And so uh, I'm, I'm emboldened every day 
by the letters that I receive and the conversations that I have with the millions of people living with this and what that representation means to them. Before you go, tell us how you have fun when I think about little 10-year-old Diana Presley running around campaigning for Harold Washington as her mom yes. reads her bedtime stories yes, of like Barbara Jordan's speeches. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. now I feel like I know you. Tell yeah. me what you do for fun. What makes you laugh and what makes you happy? Yeah. You know, spending time with uh with my family, my husband and our daughter and our and our cat too, you know. We're serious about the work of abolition here. Our cat's name is Sojourner Truth. And um, <laughs> we call we call her Sojo, but um, spending time with my family, you know, bike riding, you know, um, just being intentional about informing joy. Uh, we play dominoes, connect four, you know, as a family. Um, you know, I have my shows, um, you know, that I binge like um, Law and Order, SVU. I know it's still heavy stuff, but I love my crime shows. I love my documentaries. And then something probably very few people know about me is that um, I'm, I'm a voracious reader, but what I read the most is, is poetry. And um, yeah, that, that feeds my soul. So I, I love well, Congresswoman Presley, I, I think that anybody who undertakes the work to go and serve their country as you have uh, deserves our congratulations. <laughs> I'll let me say it differently, our thanks. Because uh, sometimes it's just hard and I bet it's as hard as it looks. Thank you also for just doing the work of reminding people that it doesn't end. You know, the work doesn't end. Wherever our parents came from and our, our grandparents came from, uh, we have moved the ball, but the ball still needs to move yet further. Thank Congresswoman you. Ayanna Presley, you do me a great honor by being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'm so grateful for your representation and this incredible platform that you created. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.